Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on biomarkers in I.O., challenges and putative benefits of multi-omics technologies from the 2021 Immuno-Oncology 360 Summit. For more information about the Immuno-Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to our breakout session where we will have our biomarker panel, biomarkers in IO, challenges and putative benefits of multi-omics technologies. And I will hand it on over to Dr. Teresa Lavalli with Pisces, who will lead us in this uh, discussion today. And I'll let uh, Dr. Lavalli introduce our panelists. So thank you all so very much and welcome. Thanks, Kate. And um, I just wanna congratulate Kate and the team for just a really wonderful conference so far. I've really enjoyed it. And I think I'm very excited about this panel. We have a, a good group of folks with that's really cross-discipline um, from multi-omic technologies, from blood and tissue, to folks from nonprofit, just really focused on advancing medicines for patients and importantly, and I think the part that we forget is that we don't just do biomarkers for good publications, but really to bring them to patients. So kind of a statistician's eye into really helping the development aspects of it. So I'm Teresa Lavalli. I'm at the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. And it's just really an honor to lead this panel today. So I will let each of the panelists introduce themselves and I'll go in order of my Brady Bunch screen. So uh, Cliff, if you want to start. Sure, yeah. Hi, uh, this is Cliff Hoyt. I'm, um, I'm the VP of Translational and Scientific, Scientific Affairs at Akoya. Um, I'm, I think I'm here on the panel to represent the tissue imaging side of things, um, especially because I think tissue imaging is becoming a, a one of the omics in the omics portfolio and, and understanding the tumor microenvironment. My background, um, co-founded a company back in the day that got bought by Perkin Elmer, developed this, uh, this one of these platforms and uh, was uh, helped run the um, quantitative pathology solutions business at, at Perkin Elmer for about eight years and then decided um, with senior management that we could find a better home and, and we uh, sold ourselves to a growth equity firm and merged ourselves with Akoya, which was a brand new company a few years ago. And ended up with two tissue imaging platforms. One's called Codex, which is of interest, and in, I think particularly in this case, but also another platform called Phenoptics. And, and between the two of them, they represent a nice continuum of very high plex discovery right through to um, high throughput, analytic, analytically robust, potentially clinically appropriate workflows. Nice to meet you all. Thank you. And how about Jared? I'm Jared Lutzford. I'm a statistician uh, at Merck Research Laboratories. Um, I've been involved in biomarker work um, basically starting since uh, pembrolizumab um, came onto the scene here. So back in 2011, I have um, been involved in uh, biomarker discovery and, and development. Uh, companion diagnostic approvals have uh, been my focus, working with all kinds of biomarkers, everything from IHC to um, genomic technologies and, and, and starting to look at imaging technologies. So anyway, glad to be here. Thank you. And Angel? 
Hi, thank you, Teresa. I'm Angel Rodriguez. I'm medical director at Natera, and prior to joining Natera, as a practicing medical oncologist with a specialty in, in breast oncology, uh, and in particular, right, addressing the questions from the patient perspective. You know, can I try immunotherapy? Uh, trying to answer those questions. Can is immunotherapy working and and now working at Natera, which is uh, a CTDNA uh, a platform. Uh, um, uh, company, uh, it's trying to answer that question. Is, is uh, immunotherapy working? And, you know, how quickly can we tell patients that it is or it isn't so that there can be a change in plan? Thank you. And I said, thanks, Teresa. And uh, thanks to I360 organizers uh, for inviting me to the panel. My name is Samik Badai. I'm a research analyst at the CRI Anna Maria Kellen Accelerator. Um, and CRI Cancer Research Institute is dedicated to uh, fueling the discovery and development of powerful immunotherapies. And as Teresa said, you know we're, we have patients at our, at our very focus, um, so we're ultimately helping save patients' lives. Um, so CRI has been around for over 65 years, and we have a track record of supporting important scientific work uh, in uh, immunology and cancer research overall. So within CRI, uh, the Accelerator team is a unique academia nonprofit industry collaboration model and that serves as an incubator of sorts to advance uh, cancer immunotherapy um, by supporting science-driven um, clinical trials. So within the team, I help lead the program's uh, scientific diligence efforts, uh, including analysis of emerging trends um, and challenges in the oncology space, which I hope will be of some use in the panel today. Um, so before this, I conducted research in immunology uh, with a focus on the hematopoietic system. Great. So with that, maybe just some introductory remarks in terms of think of biomarkers. Um, and, the, you know, there have been three approved for checkpoint inhibitors uh, in terms of looking at who to treat or to inform who to treat. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion, and I've heard a few talks uh, speak highly of and poorly of pdl one and its utility, but I think um, it was interesting that we had a biomarker discussion prepping for the organization of this meeting. And uh, I think that the people there really felt that pdl one despite everything that people can complain about, it really has been impactful and showed utility and bringing PD-1 and PDL one inhibitors to patients more broadly. And many of those studies wouldn't have been approved without it. Um, we look at MSI high, we look at TMB, blood-based, tissue-based, and tumor agnostic opportunities to really think outside of the anatomical location. Um, we heard this morning from Liz Jaffe the importance of combination strategies. We've heard that a lot in this meeting, and perhaps that's where the multi-omic component comes up because the complexity of really thinking about how to screen for patients either to have a predictive biomarker to put them on study or to make treatment-based decisions about when to switch therapies um, is going to take a different mindset and perhaps an integrated multi-omic approach might be better, but has lots of challenges. So maybe just to start, we'll start with Samik and for many people on the audience, I'm sure we've all referenced the CRI landscape papers that have really helped 
keep the scope of the field, both from the breadth of agents, the number of trials, the number of uh, checkpoint inhibitor cell therapy. So uh, in the analysis, how much work have you seen really being done on using biomarkers, not just for important mechanistic findings, but really to design trials? Sure. Uh, thanks for the question, Terry. As you mentioned, you know, at CRI, uh, our team is actively analyzing the, the global immune oncology pipeline. And we do this by aggregating, you know, IO agents, uh, which we then categorize um, into various IO modalities, such as cell therapy, cancer vaccine, T-cell engagers, and other immune modulators, including T-cell immune modulators. Uh, so then we pull oncology clinical trials, investigating these agents from publicly available databases like uh, clinicaltrials.gov. Um, and then we interrogate various um, criteria of these trials, including you know, the phase, uh, the combination modality, targeted mechanisms and pathways, and, and so on. Um, and as you referenced, we've, pub we've been publishing various subsets of, of these analyses uh, in peer-reviewed journals over the past few years. Um, and I would first back up and say that and since we started doing this, this comprehensive analysis uh, about three years ago, um, we've seen a steady rise in the number of um, a total number of IO agents, which shouldn't be a surprise to, to anybody. Uh, and that, that is actually accounted in every modality that we look at, especially cell therapy, and in particular has seen a tremendous uh, increase in the number of agents. Um, and this is in both preclinical and early phase one, phase two uh, stages. Uh, there's also an expansion in, in the targets and pathways uh, that these IO agents are targeting. Um, so with regards to biomarkers, um, so this is also an evolving area for us, right? So we were, we we're very interested in actually aggregating information in terms of biomarker usage in, in IO landscape. And we've been compiling an internal library of sorts uh, for IO biomarkers, including 20 plus predictive and prognostic biomarkers, and then biomarker enabling tissues, and also biomarker enabling technologies, which is of, of very much a relevance to, to this panel here. And so in these technologies, you know, we're looking at anywhere from, from your genetic to transcriptomic to protein level technologies um, uh, for these biomarkers. And what we see is that in, in the last decade, there has been a slow but steady increase in biomarker-enabled trials. Uh, and we do this analysis by a combination of, of analyzing information available um, on the use of these actual biomarkers, right? So the usual suspects, as you mentioned, being PDL1, you know, TMB and uh, circulating tumor DNA. Um, we also look at, you know, the tissues, uh, information available on tissues collected, like blood or microbiome or PBMCs, and we also look at technologies employed for these. Um, just a quick caveat is that in our analysis, obviously, they're uh, limited by what's reported in clinicaltrials.gov. But having said that, uh, while majority of uh, IO trials that we actually see are enabled uh, for biomarkers, few have clinical validation. And I think this point has been raised uh, multiple times during uh, the IO360 conference. Um, and I think these some of the challenges to clinical implementation, we can get into this a little bit later, but I think this is one of the things that we see that, yes, they are enabled for, for biomarker usage, but uh, there is still a, a big space that's, that needs to be filled in terms of actual clinical validation and usage. That's a perfect segue into Jared, um, who has a wonderful development experience and and bringing these biomarkers forward. So perhaps from your mind lens of looking at the eyes wide open 
for what are the pitfalls that you see in a lot of these folks really trying to bring in these exploratory biomarkers versus bringing them to where we can take them to the finish line? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's a number of, um, I guess, difficulties that have to be traversed as you think about bringing something to patient care. Um, you know, as clinical trials progress and as you accrue data, you know, um, often I think the exploratory data, you know, at scale lag the trials themselves, right? And trying to um, um, develop biomarkers that validate, you know, that I think I've, I've, I've gained a very good appreciation of looking at small data sets, trying to improve biomarkers, trying to discover new biomarkers and recognizing sometimes findings can be quite fragile. So the, you know, I think that the, the things that have to be done are to, to find things that are reliable, replicable. Um, and then when we talk about clinical validation, what that really means in a, in a clinical development and randomized setting, you know, means a device has to be uh, part of a clinical trial design, right? So by nature of sort of science lags, you learn things, you try to validate things, you try to get the best things you can, and then to take those into clinical trial designs, right? So that you get that clinical validation, right? These are all sort of the steps that <clears throat> may make it more of an intimidating thing to do than it might sound. Um, uh, um, but uh, um, so I think genomic technologies are definitely providing insights, um, uh, but you often have heterogeneous tissues, you have different lines of therapy and all those things sort of play into defining reliable biomarkers. Um, and I think my several years at this has just given me a respect for that it is actually quite a difficult process to, to invent, validate and globalize, yeah. Good, important comments, and I often say, which people are of hearing, but it's the devil in the details, right? So the details matter, particularly in a translational development phase, and perhaps um, thinking of the tumor and genomics, but also we've seen a lot of work of late really showing that the imaging technologies can do both biomarker discovery from tumor and immune profiling. So I know Cliff, from Akoya's perspective, you have both the codex, which is much more of a biomarker discovery versus the phenoptics that maybe is coming forward and maybe speak about the use of both of those and where you see uh, phenoptics really demonstrating utility and coming yeah. forward. Sure. Yeah, the um, Codex platform is is a it's, for those of you who don't know, it, it's a multiplex immunofluorescence platform that lets you use up to up to fifty antibodies on a tissue section and then report out three at a time in a cycled way. And you can build up a, um, a forty to fifty plex image of of tissue biopsies from trials. And um, not a terribly high throughput platform, but a great way to discover what's actually going on in the microenvironment especially related to what's going on when the, a patient receives a drug. Um, and, and there's lots of these other kinds of multiplex immunohistochemistry, mass spec based and, and other kinds of fluorescence based approaches. Um, but um, the goal there is, is to really understand what's going on in the tumor, maybe having an enriched cohort of samples 
a few responders, a few non, look for some patterns that correlate strongly. And then, um, but where this starts to transition into the translational spaces, there's another platform called the Phenoptics, which was, um, it's, it's much more of a, it's sort of halfway between what Codex is and what conventional IHC is. And we've been talking about PDL1 IHC. In PDL1 IHC, you, you see where PDL1 protein is. You don't necessarily know what cells the PDL1 is on. I mean, a pathologist can pick it out pretty well. But if you really want to understand the detail, or for example, look at instead of just the, the, the ligand, you look at the receptor as well and you see if they're near one another. Um, and then if you go into combos, you may want to look at two or three different checkpoints at the same time, et cetera. Um, but so on the codex, we, we try to understand what the biology, the driving biology is. And then once we understand what key markers relate to response, then you can transition it to what we call a phenoptics workflow, which is a high throughput platform. And um, Jared, you were talking about validation, et cetera. And that's, that's where the field is right now, is, is really on the cusp of validating this approach in trials. Um, I think there's, most pharma have already incorporated multiplex immunofluorescence as a, an exploratory biomarker for sure. Um, and, uh, but I think just this year, I know of three inclusion assays um, based on multiplex immunofluorescence or immunohistochemistry. And I wouldn't expect that, I would expect that to be 20 next year because it, um, because the biology that's being revealed in this way is, is really helping understand why a patient responds or not. Was, was that helpful? That's great. No, and it's a really powerful technology to be able to get that spatial regional location. And really the problem with immunology is every day you have to learn a new marker. Um, so it's not just whether it's a T cell, it's whether it's a activated T cell or an exhausted T cell and um, getting more and more markers on there really will help us from discovery. Um, tissue is what everybody in oncology likes to look at. Mm -hmm. What I always say is we like to believe what we can put our hands on, but when we think about metastatic disease and the heterogeneity and even in different papers, and I think there was a talk yesterday that showed even responses with cell therapy where they could, when they looked at responding and non-responding lesions in a single patient, they had mutations in the lesions that weren't responding to the car. Mm -hmm. um, and so tissue is always the issue. There's never enough <laughs> and yeah. the details of getting the right matrix. So I think exciting complementing with the tissue-based biomarkers are the liquid biopsies, and it's really come of age lately. Um, so Angel, maybe you want to talk about your look at that, and particularly with your medical background with thinking of the patient. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, clearly uh, Jared and Clay are working hard in, in trying to answer the question you know, who may respond to immunotherapy and who has a reasonable chance and therefore we should try immunotherapy. So, you know, this ctDNA monitoring tool is, is just complements that very well. You know, we're, we unfortunately, we don't have that predictive biomarker that gives us a 100% chance of response. So, you know, what better way than to monitor disease burden with a, you know, with a blood test that, that, that could accurately uh, tell us whether the disease is responding or not. And so, 
you know, the, um, you know, we were very fortunate to work with uh, Princess Margaret Cancer Center investigators and who in turn were collaborating with work with Merck in this uh, a clinical study where 100 patients who were treated with single agent immunotherapy. What was interesting about that study or the eligibility is that, you know, there was no predictive biomarker needed, you know, to enroll in that study. It was a study where, you know, patients were still fit enough to receive next line of treatment. Um, but unfortunately, there were no further lines of treatment available for them to receive. So it was like, let's try immunotherapy. And so it was a great proof of principle type of study where we were able to, number one, answer the question, can we design a, a personalized and tumor-informed ctDNA assay that is unique to each patient? Uh, that's one, and, you know, that was able to be done in, you know, can we find mutations in the tumor? Yes. That they're unique to the tumor and not to the patient? Yes. It was able to be done in 96% of the patients. And then, you know, can the ctDNA levels and changes predict response um, or outcome? And, and indeed, the, the changes, the dynamics of ctDNA were quite powerful prognostic marker to be able to see that. So I think, again, it's a tool that can complement you know, what we are already strongly working on, which is let's first try and figure out who should we try immunotherapy on. And then, of course, answer the question of, okay, if it's working, let's continue. If it's not working, let's, con let's, let's consider a, a potentially more effective agent. And do you see um, from the Signatera assay and the circulating tumor DNA with a kind of a multi-omic look from both the baseline levels and on treatment changes, do you think there'll be differences from tumor type to tumor type? I mean, we've seen so much in, in press lately, even over what level of TMB in different tumors would be best, even though it has a 10 number for pan tumor, but other folks think that you need different cut points for different aspects. So how do you think of it from the tumor versus tumor indication perspective? Yeah, so 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 great question. And actually, there's sort of, you know, to, a, a distinction that would need to be made is that, you know, you have this static biomarker, which is pdl one TMB, and you have the result before you even try immunotherapy. And then there's certainly cutoffs there that need to be determined and we need to figure out from tumor type to tumor type of where do we have a reasonable chance of response. Now, when you're talking about on treatment monitoring, we actually have the same question now, which is um, per, per tumor type, it may be that a change in ctDNA level of mean tumor molecules per milliliter, a certain change going up is going to be predictive of a very high chance of no benefit or progression of disease. But, but that may vary from tumor type to tumor type, possibly. And then not to mention, okay, if, we're, if we are uh, looking for a response, and sometimes we do need a response in patients that are, you know, that have significant disease burden, then also what is going to be the cutoff of a decrease uh, that will predict uh, response to treatment. So, so we are, you know, working on a on a registry study that is looking at that data. Um, but on the on the study that we uh, published with the Princess Margaret Cancer Center, it, you know, we were, it was simply as any change up versus any change down that was actually a quite powerful predictive marker. Yeah. No. And uh, Jared, maybe from a when you think about the trial design and, and really getting the statistics with the different biomarkers, 
I mean, what, what would you caution people to really think of in their design if they want to look from a pan tumor versus a multi tumor to really test the hypothesis and then to best inform the design for a pivotal study? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's not a lot of examples of pan tumor, right? If we're talking about approved, right? I mean, um, at least in the in the uh, checkpoint blockade for PD-1 or PDL one right, we'd be talking about MSI high and TMB high. You know, I think those, <clears throat> those things come from an assemblage of a lot of data, really. Um, and, um, and um, not necessarily uh, amenable to within cancer trial designs, really, when you talk about sort of rare biomarker subgroups. So I think, though, those are have been very special exceptions that have arisen as very clear signals over the accrual of a lot of data, right? And then the agency, you know, FDA being willing to um, consider a lot of data and what it's saying about patient need and patient response. Um, so, um, you know, outside of that, where you talk about PDL one, and, and I think this is a, a very, very difficult issue, right? You usually have very, you know, smaller single arm late development trials uh, that have to be used for cutoff selection to support larger randomized trials that will also move across lines of therapy. And so trying to get those cutoffs is obviously something we struggle with a lot to try to make a good decision to try to also keep um, some uniformity in clinical practice. And so, you know, the, obviously as a statistician, I'm just going to say the bigger the training data set, the better off you're going to be and the more confidence you'll have in your, in your, in, in the things that you set. Right. Um, and I guess a lot of people work for perfect cutoffs. I think people have to recognize that there's an amount of data that goes into a decision and then there's a clinical validation of that in a later trial. Right. And, and doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean established validation, right? So I, I think we have to distinguish those two. I loved your opening comments, Jared, that you're often asked to work with really small data sets because I think we have these discoveries and, and really want our statistician to help us help get the development path with without having all the numbers that we would like, but having that flexibility and then using the retrospective data, I think Mark has really done a tremendous job of doing that. So I think there's a question here in the chat, if I'm understanding it, maybe I'll go to Cliff for both this to loop this in, thinking of omic te techniques of peripheral blood sampling versus more difficult to obtain tumor samples that bring sampling error into the mix. Um, there's a lot of complexity with the tumor biopsies and and fixing and and processing yeah. and i know akoya has done a lot of work to address that in their platform and it's come a long way over the years yeah i, I think from a what what sources of information are going to be more useful we, we'll follow the data obviously and um the way we look at it the tissue for sure will be useful in the you know the, the resection the pre treatment sec resections, because there's a wonderful opportunity there to see, you know, the untreated tissue and see what the, 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 the existing biology is. Um, but then in terms of coupling it with maybe a, a blood-based test, um, 
maybe the, 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 the resection can inform what you see in the blood and vice versa. And then um, once that coupling has been made, monitoring via blood, maybe those three things can, can really help each other be synergistic. Um, on the uh, sampling error issue, I think that it's kind of an interesting topic because you know, biopsy is a piece of tissue from lots of areas that are diseased. And, and um, I think what, what we're finding in the, in the, uh, um, in the trials and, and uh, what we've been involved in is that fortunately, the signatures, the signatures that are emerging related to understanding how the immune system is positioned ahead of treatment or then what happens during treatment is that um, the, the predictive power of these biomarkers is very high, extremely high. Um, I've, I've seen some recent work that will get hopefully emerge in a high profile journal where and, um, the area under the curve, you know, the, the, the figure of merit in a rock curve function is about 0.9 for long-term response um, to anti-PD-1. And this is with a really healthy validation set as well. And so I think they're, it, it's um, very encouraging that when you look at what's happening with the immunobiology in one particular area, it seems to be representative of the systemic situation, at least. Was that, was that helpful? I think that was that was a lot of insight and and seeing as the uh, the utility is where it comes down to and we've definitely seen these tissue best based biomarkers work but they do have the limits and I think you know we often think of the metastatic disease but I know Angel when we had the the prep you were talking about how do we bring these earlier and disease, and do you have any thoughts there of considerations? Yeah, the, definitely. I think that when we when we think about this this biomarker, and specifically the ctDNA biomarker for monitoring in the metastatic setting, it's almost like in the metastatic setting. Well, that's that should be the positive control. You know, patients who we know have uh, disease. Uh, the the biomarker should be detected and it should be positive and it should track uh, with response. Now, you know, can we move that uh, biomarker earlier and in all, and really identify a, a a new stage of disease, which is patients that have completed curative intent treatment and do not have you know what we now define as stage four or overt. Uh, metastatic disease that we can see on imaging, but rather they have molecular residual disease, where uh, certainly it means that the tumor burden is a lot lower. And really the, the age-old question now is, you know, do our patients who have molecular residual disease or recurrence, do we have a second chance of cure? So if we monitor these patients after curative intent treatment with a highly specific and sensitive uh, ctDNA assay, once we detect uh, uh, ctDNA, what does that mean? You know, the patient is destined to relapse, you know, and, and, and with our assay, it's a positive predictive value of 98%. And again, the question really is, can we change the outcome of our patients? Does it mean that if we treat patients at that point, do we, are we giving, are we, are we going to give them a second chance of cure? Uh, you know, because the worst case scenario is that, no, we're, we're not extending uh, survival. We're just treating them earlier. So those studies are essential. They're needed. They're they're being done. Um, and and 
And I think one thing to point out is that, you know, when we do identify patients who do have molecular residual disease or, or recurrence, this is a brand new patient population that is certainly going to be healthier than when their disease is, has higher tumor burden. And then obviously also more motivated, you know, more motivated to find that clinical trial, you know, where they can potentially eradicate that residual molecular disease. The important comments. Um, and then maybe thinking more broadly from the IO space, I know, Samik, with your strong immunology and really looking across all the different classes of treatments, do you think of the biomarkers like for cell and gene therapy very differently than a checkpoint inhibitor versus a combination study, um, particularly as we hear about antigen loss and T-cell fitness thoughts there? So I say it's it's a rather emerging area, right? Especially especially when we look at uh, when we think about solid tumors, and I think generally speaking, uh, you know, doing uh, a lot of data analysis for this and looking across you know pan tumor types and across the IO landscape, there are, there are certain challenges that that sort of pop up, and I, I generally think of it as in like two different buckets essentially: understanding biology, you know, in terms of tumor heterogeneity and variability in post-intrinsic factors, but also there's a separate um, challenge in terms of standardization, uh, both for the biomarker itself and also for the methods. And this relates back to the, the, the omics um, issue we're, we're talking about here. So, you know, tumor sampling is, is, is one thing that, you know, that, that can have a lot of variability and that's something that probably needs to be standardized. And I do believe that, you know, something that um, the panelists and speakers, even today, um, in, in an excellent uh, the new adjuvant space uh, talked about in terms of perhaps combining both liquid and tumor biopsies is, is a great idea. And also thinking about longitudinal follow-ups um, in, in terms of the space. And also the, the data analytics and the computer algorithms we're using to, to actually look at these data sets. Uh, so standardization, harmonization across these aspects is probably more important also. I know that probably doesn't answer your question directly, but these are some of the things that we encountered when when we're trying to compile our, our data together that you know the the field there's way more uh, unanswered questions and open questions than, than we can actually answer for right now uh, especially in the solid tumor space no i think excellent points and um when we think to you know what we spend a lot of time thinking about is immunogram and how can you perhaps i mean if, when we think of targeted therapies, really looking at how predictive biomarkers became truth for people was if you have a tumor driver and then you shut it off, it 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 works. Um, the complexity of the heterogeneity of a tumor and the immune system, I mean, we said system, not cell. Um, so characterizing T cells, myeloid cells, Again, I think uh, Liz's talk this morning really characterized the complexities of um, really looking at the whole system um, and how do we get an algorithm for who to treat and how to treat and going forward. Um, and so maybe with those bringing it together and the technologies we've heard about here and the rigor that we'll need to really get them development Maybe in the last couple minutes of the panel, I'll surprise everyone and go off everything we talked about, but put you on the spot to say, uh, inspired by the city talk earlier, where they gave the list of 
what was 2020, what was the best targets, what do you think is going to be um, the thing to look for in 2021 from the biomarker space with immunotherapy in this broad class? Um, so, Angel, you want to start? <laughs> sure. You know, I think we've all talked about the focus of all this conference is how challenging it is to, you know, identify the right patient and, and identify the right drug for that patient, in this case, immunotherapy. Uh, and I think, um, you, know, you know, the, the uh, uh, tool is, is really creating a, a paradigm shift in how we are viewing uh, both response and, and and also monitoring our patients. And now this is a tool that's been used for decades when we talk about our colleagues who've been treating leukemia, you know, for many, many years where they know for a fact that when CTDNA is persistent after, you know, curative intent treatment, you know, they, they don't stop there. Now they've had, you know, they've, they've had the time to be able to prove that another intervention can change the outcome, such as a bone marrow transplant, for example. And I think to apply this in patients with solid tumors, uh, I mean, we're, we're, this is just the tip of the iceberg, and I'm really excited to be working in a field where, um, uh, you know, this, this tool is here for, for, for us to use and, uh, and, and treat our patients. Yeah, now we look forward to more data there, too. Okay, Cliff? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, um, I think you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I think we, we talk we talk a lot about um, you know IHC and tumor mutation burden and MSI and, and circulating tumor DNA, and these are fabulous platforms. Obviously, have a, a major role in all of this. I do think that multiplex immunohistochemistry immunofluorescence is going to enter into that that main toolkit um, because of all the things that we're seeing. It's just an exponential growth in publications, covers of magazines, and then in trials. Um, um, pretty much every pharma we interact with, it's now an integral part of the, of the uh, thinking around how to understand this stuff. So I think that'll end up on the list too, as one of the, the key omics, probably within a year, I think. Great, and beautiful pictures to go with it. So we look yeah. forward to that. <laughs> Jared. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess, <clears throat> I think about this from approvals that are out there and what patients don't yet have access to drugs that have clearly been shown to have benefit for those patients. So I would hope that what we see uh, in years going forward is um, tests, validated good clinical diagnostic tests being more broadly available um, um, even outside the United States and things like that to bring um, some of these agnostic um, tumor indications where patients, you know, really have high mutational loads and things and these patients that don't have options that they will have the chance to get a test to get the drug. Yeah, and I think that's a challenge. And so I hope, you know, we'd see, see some evolution in that. Yeah. Good, it makes us work harder and gives us a high bar to shoot for then. Yeah. <laughs> and to make um, I think I'll go back to the the, the challenges uh, aspect of it because I think it is really important for us to understand the biology um, and really fund basic and clinical translational science to understand that and just having the focus of making a feasible a reproducible biomarker strategy that perhaps combines the different strategies including you know harmonization of different technologies 
uh, versus different methods and definitions of biomarkers. So I hope that, I mean, I echo Angel's comments that I think CTDNA, um, uh, you know, um, biomarkers like CTDNA have a really, uh, have a proven track record and I, and, and I think we'll see more of that in the future, but I think generally speaking, sort of a patient-centric feasibility and reproducibility uh, for biomarkers will be, uh, which I hope we'll see in the future. I think we have one minute left. I didn't see the question come up. Kate, can I still squeeze in one more? <laughs> Sorry, I missed this one. Um, can you comment on qualitative versus quantitative aspects of CTDNA platforms? Are they ready for patient selection? Um, so, Angel, you want to take that quickly? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I think so, two questions in one. I think when it comes to the qualitative aspect of, of CTDNA, I think you know, we have to certainly look at the data and look at what it means. So having a positive test with CDDNA with uh, the data that has been generated with our tumor-informed assay gives us a positive predictive value of 98%. So, you know, not, I wouldn't necessarily say that the patients are at a higher risk, but, you know, these patients are destined to relapse, you know, without any further intervention. And in terms of, you know, are they ready for patient selection? Listen, I think it depends on tumor type or tumor type, and I'm always going to fall on the side of data. So, you know, we're working hard with collaborators like, like Merck, for example, to, to design and do those studies that are needed, you know, to prove that indeed this, this selects, well, is it ready for patient selection in clinical trials? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and I do think that, you know, design of future trials need to, need to consider, you know, this highly enriched patient population. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Amino Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you.